Good morning, Restoration Church. Uh, if I've not had a chance to meet you, my name is Joey Kraft, and I have the privilege and the joy of serving as one of the pastors here. And uh, Lord willing, in eight days, I will have the privilege of taking the first ever sabbatical given to a pastor at Restoration Church. And so, uh, first, I just want to say, church, thank you. Um, Thank you for your generosity in granting me and my family extended time away from the daily pressures and responsibilities of of pastoral work. I realize that for many of you, if not all of you, this is going to cause extra work for you. And so, and I realize a sabbatical is not mandated by Scripture, and it's not even promised by Scripture. But yet, you have given me and my family a, a precious gift. And so, thank you for your kindness and your generosity and a special thanks to our current, uh, voca- our, our current lay elders and even the ones that came before us who have, who have from the very beginning, have pushed for sabbaticals for, the, for Nathan and myself in this pastoral work. And so many of you have told me how excited you are for my family to go away, and I trust this is because you want us to get some rest, not just because you want to get rid of us uh, for a couple of months. And many of you have asked, Joey, what are you going to do on your sabbatical? What are you going to do? I'm going to do nothing. Not true. Uh, I will rest, uh, but a sabbatical is a time of rest, but it's not a, it's not a completely work-less time. It, there will be some vacation, but it's not one long 10-week vacation. Uh, and so uh, it contains these elements, but the intent is to provide space for rest and renewal and refreshment of my soul and my family's soul with the, the health of our family and the longevity of our ministry in view. I hope to die being a pastor of this church. And so I want to do it year after year after year, joyfully and not under compulsion. And so what I'll do, I'll, I'll rest, I'll read, and I'll learn. So I'll rest. So uh, I'll, be, I'll be removed from daily responsibilities. So if you send me an email next Monday or after for 10 weeks, you can get a kickback saying this email will not be read. And so there will be no emails, no planning, no meeting, no discipling, none of that, other than my children, none of that uh, is going to happen. And so uh, we'll be physically away from D.C. for most of the time. We'll, we'll go to church together as a family, uh, and I'll be able to sit with my family in a pew with no formal responsibilities for weeks on end. I haven't done that for a decade. And so, um, yeah, we'll spend time together as a family. So I'll rest, I'll read devotionally. I'm going to soak in the four Gospels over and over again. I just want to look at the person, the work, the, the worth, the beauty, the brilliance of the life, death, burial, resurrection, reign, and return of Christ without thinking about that sermon or that discipling or that counseling appointment just for my soul. And I have a stack of other books that I'll read as well, and they're going to be exclusively on what's called union with Christ and how that shapes our identity. I'll come back to that in a moment. So I'll rest, I'll read, and I'll learn. The longer I'm a pastor, the more I realize what I don't know. I am a limited man, severely limited man. And I spend a lot of my time discipling and counseling, and so I have not taken any dedicated time to, to think on a particular subject, and so I'm going to be taking a class, a course, in terms of biblical counseling throughout this time together. So we'll rest, I'll read, and I'll learn. So please do pray for my family, and there's a special time of, of rest that will be a recalibration. Uh, so as a pastor, as a church planter, one of the things that can happen to you is your identity becomes attached to your church. And what you think about, people think about your church, somehow you map that back onto yourself. And so just pray that the Lord would, would, would destroy any of that that's present in my heart and I'd find my identity not in this church. As much as I love you, you're a bad place to get an identity. I'd find it in Christ and I'd lead my family in that. And know that I'll be praying for you as well. 
I've been praying, church, that you would not just get by during these 10 weeks when I'm away, but you would thrive. It would be good for you and for my pride if I came back and this church was stronger and healthier when I came back than when I left. And so that's what I'm praying the Lord would do. Let me go back to that whole reading union with Christ. So out of all the things that I could have picked to think about and focus on during my sabbatical, why that? Well, having been a pastor for almost a decade now, I think union with Christ answers every question, desire, and hope that we have. So I'm not alone. 500 years ago, a man by the name of John Calvin said, union with Christ has the highest degree of importance. And a more recent pastor said, union with Christ is the fountainhead from which flows all the blessings of God. And Scripture is permeated with this idea of union with Christ. So three times the Bible uses the term Christian. Do you know how many times it uses the phrases in Christ or with Christ or through Christ? Well over 150. And so, but what exactly is union with Christ? I don't know. That's what I'm going to study. Just kidding. It's not true. Uh, I do know some of what it means. And so simply, I mean, it's it's this idea that the the union with, with Christ is this. By God's grace, all who place their faith and trust in Jesus are intimately and vitally, truly connected to Jesus. By the Spirit, so that all Jesus is, I have done. All that Jesus is, I am. And all that Jesus has is mine. Put it more simply, union with Christ is this. In Christ, we possess all, and I mean all, of his righteousness, his holiness, his, his uh, beauty, his blessing, his adoption as sons, eternal life. Everything in Christ is mine. That's what union with Christ is. And so, you can see, you could study this for all of eternity, and that's some of what we'll do in heaven. So union with Christ is like a vine and branches. All the, all the branches connected to a healthy vine receive the sap of life-giving nourishment. So it is with all who are connected to the vine of Christ. We receive the full flow of gospel-nourishing, grace-giving, soul-satisfying sap of Christ now and forever. So I think that's a good thing to think about for a couple months. And that's what I'm going to do. So we often have this quote that we, we took from a guy named A.W. Tozer. And it says, what comes into mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. We need to rightly understand God's holiness, his justice, his omnipotence, his eternality, if we want to understand ourselves in the world. That's, that's a good thing to understand. But a closely related thought is this. What comes to mind when we think about what God thinks about us, is massively important. What comes to mind when we think about what God thinks about us is massively important. And we cannot answer that question or that thought apart from our union with Christ. And so I want to begin this morning thinking about these things. It's going to kind of launch me into my sabbatical. And so this morning, I want to answer this question, or at least think about this question. What does God think about me? Because how you answer that question determines more than you might realize. How you answer that question 
will shape your affections and your actions. How you answer that question will determine what you do in times of trouble and in triumph. How you answer that question will decide what you find happiness in and what you hope for. How you answer that question, what does God think about me, will govern what you live, what you love and how you live. And so if you are not united to Christ, if we are not in Christ, He is not in us, then we have no part in His death on the cross. And we have no share in His resurrection from the dead. And so for my non-Christian friends here this morning, I'm thankful that you've joined with us. And I hope that you see from the outset, everything God has to give you is bound to Christ. He has nothing outside of Christ Jesus Christ to give to you. So apart from Jesus, there's no life, no blessing, no hope, only separation from God now and forever. So apart from Christ, I stand before God by myself, naked, stripped down, guilty. And the same is true for you. But, but if I'm in Christ, then I possess all that Jesus possesses. Amen? If I'm in Christ, everything God thinks and feels for Jesus, God thinks and feels for me. And the same is true for you. These are weighty, yet wonderful realities. And so I want to spend some time this morning taking a brief look at how God the Father sees His Son And how this shapes the way Christ lives and apply that to our lives. And we're going to do that. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through chapter 4, verse 11. And I'm going to go ahead and be honest with you and tell you right up front this morning, I am going to cheat. So typically at Restoration Church, we preach what we call consecutive expositional sermons. So it's where you take a a passage from the Bible, you work through it verse by verse, and you seek to understand and apply the author's main point of that passage. So this is is what we'd call a good diet. So for preaching, so like a diet filled with vegetables and fruit and omega-3 fatty acids is good for the body, consecutive expositional preaching is good for the soul. That's why we give most of our time to it. But in my family, we like dessert every once in a while. And in moderation, I think dessert is a good thing. And so this morning, I'm going to feed you a little bit of dessert. And so in this passage, we have the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus. And I'm going to tell you right up front, the main point of Matthew is this. To reveal the identity of Jesus as the greater Adam, the true Israel, the promised Savior. That's Matthew's point. So in the baptism of Christ, we see the proclamation of Jesus' identity. In the temptation of Christ, we see the, the pro- he proves his identity. That's Matthew's main point. And with that backdrop and disclaimer, I want to meditate on some themes of the passage. So this is not so much strict exposition as it is thematic meditation. And so here's what I want to do. I want to, I want to say, here's what I want to, how I want to meditate on this passage. First, God's love is based on who... You are not what you do. Second, when we know who we are, we'll joyfully do what God calls us to do. 
So to be clear, I'm going to preach this passage with a view toward union with Christ, and it has a lot to say about that. But I don't know it's Matthew's main point to come to this passage to get union with Christ. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your word. And so as we think about Christ this morning, take your word and apply it to our lives. Take your word and shape us and show us and change us that we might marvel at Jesus. Spirit, do this. Remind us of our status as sons and daughters. And for those here that are not trusting in Christ, reveal to them the weight of being apart from Christ and the wonder of being in Him, we pray. Amen. God's love is not based on who you are. God's love is based on who you are. God's love is not based on what you do, but who you are. Matthew three thirteen through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fulfilling for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That's the Word of God. So the first public appearance of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And what's he doing? He is getting in line to be baptized. So I can imagine the scene. John is in the Jordan baptizing men and women who are repenting of their transgressions. Men and women who are convinced of their rebellion against God and their unworthiness to stand before God. And I am sure this line is filled with the, the, the outcasts, the, the thieves, the, 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 thieves the, the sexually immoral, the marginalized, the, clean, the unclean, and those deemed unworthy. Because we know the Pharisees, the, the, the righteous, righteous people are standing there ridiculing. And so this, this line of these men and women being baptized are the outcasts of society. And in that line stands Jesus Christ. And he stands in that line, not for his sin, but to identify with theirs and ours. See, the first thing Jesus does in his ministry is go down into the waters of baptism. The first thing Jesus does to start his earthly ministry is get in a river among sinners. The last thing Jesus does as his earthly ministry is hang on a cross between thieves. From start to finish, Jesus identifies with sinners. This was the Father's loving, redeeming plan to fulfill all righteousness for those that come to Christ. So if you're here, and you're thinking right now, I'm too messed up, I'm too dirty, I'm too unclean, I'm too broken, I'm too unworthy for Jesus. Look no further than these baptismal waters. Jesus is standing in line with you and for you. He was not baptized for his sin 
shame and guilt. He had none. He goes into the baptismal waters to take on our sin, our shame, and our guilt. All of us struggle throughout our lives with sin. And all of us struggle with the stain of sins committed against us. But in Christ Jesus, our sin and our shame do not have to define us. He alone defines us. He identifies with us that we in turn might identify with Him. And that's good news because what does God the Father say of the Son? Jesus comes up out of the baptismal waters. A voice from heaven booms. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The first thing the New Testament says that God the Father sang from heaven to the world is this. It's an unobstructed glimpse of God the Father's love for the Son. With deep affection, God the Father looks at Jesus and says, My Son, I love Him. I take great delight in Him. He is fully pleasing to me. And let's not forget when all this is taking place. Jesus hasn't started His public ministry yet. Jesus hasn't performed great miracles. Jesus hasn't rebuked false teachers. Jesus hasn't taught the crowds. Jesus hasn't made disciples. The only thing we know is that he's gotten baptized. Seems to me this confirms the Father loves the Son not just for what he does, but for who he is. Now, is Jesus' perfect, obedient life pleasing to the Father? Well, of course it is. Of course it is. But the Father's love is not founded on that. The foundation for and the cause of is the relationship of a father and son that's begun in eternity past and will go to eternity future. It's based on who, not what. But what does that have to do with me, Joey? You say, that's Jesus. He's perfect. I'm not perfect. If you think you're perfect, you're not. Well, if we think back to our union with Christ, this means everything. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. For in Christ Jesus, you all are sons of God through faith. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Do you see what this means? Christian brothers and sisters, all the kindness and affection and sweetness and intimacy heard in the Father's voice to His Son is the same voice that speaks these affectionate words to you. So, it's not what you do. It's who you are. In Christ In Christ, God looks at you and says, My beloved son. My beloved daughter. 
So some of you may know I have two daughters. And sometimes I'll just lean over and I'll kiss one of them on the head and I'll just say, I just want you to know that daddy loves you. And the other one, if they hear, they'll look up with me with like a a what about me kind of face, daddy. And I'll say something like, well, you didn't clean your room, so I don't love you. No. What do I do? No matter what they've done, I lean over, I kiss the other one on the head, and I say, I just want you to know daddy loves you. So it is with God and Jesus and us. When we are joined to Christ by the Spirit, we share the same love the Father has for the Son. We are wrapped up in that. The very same love the Father has for the Son is the same love He has for us. And these are not just my words. Go read John 16 and 17. These are the words of Christ. So in Christ, we are really and truly the sons and daughters of God with all the rights and privileges of what it means to be a child. Now you can see why I want to study you with Christ. So remember, Jesus Jesus identified with us in our sinfulness that we might identify with him in his righteousness. And because of this, because of this, we are not just free to go from God as judge, we are free to come to God as Father. But I fear too many Christians think of God less as a loving Father and more like a tolerating judge. And here's the problem with that. If we see God primarily as a judge, even if we're declared innocent, not guilty, we're very happy to never see the judge again. To be right with the judge is a good thing. To be loved and cared for by a father is a greater thing. So in union with Christ, in Christ, we are not just cleared legally before God as judge, we're included and loved emotionally in the heart of the father. And I fear too many Christians doubt God's love specifically and personally and particularly for them. They might understand God, yes, he's universally loving. And they might understand, I can see how God could love that person over there or that person over there. But somehow they feel or believe that they are removed from God's love, that God couldn't possibly love them. We sing of God's love as we just did, but I'm not sure we always believe it. We share it with others, but not sure if it applies to myself. We might understand the gospel well enough to know God is holy and we've sinned against him. We can't be made right with God by our own works, but it's only by grace through faith. We trust in the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. We might understand that. We might know that God accepts all who come to him in repentance and and faith, trusting in Christ. But once we've done that, we believe and live as if God is always disappointed with us and continually frustrated with us. Or to put it another way, we think of salvation like a mulligan in golf. God would rather just have a do-over. Let's go ahead and erase that one from the scorecard and give me a mulligan. I'll try again. Maybe that's you. 
Maybe you're like a guy about name, named Ed that I read about. Ed says this, God the Father doesn't really love me. Jesus has brought me into his family, but the Father only accepts me because he has to. I'm just a sinner. God sees me as a disruptive nuisance child or an unwanted stepchild. He has to endure. God the Father doesn't really love me. He loves Jesus, and therefore he only tolerates me. Now there's a hint of truth in what Ed says. We are sinners, every single one of us. We will be until we get to heaven and see Jesus face to face. But Ed's words mischaracterize God's love for us. God's love is not begrudging, but overflowing. God's love is not limited, but lavish. God's love is not forced, but freely flowing. Listen to these verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So these verses tell us a couple things. They tell us first, there is no salvation. You cannot know or enjoy God apart from believing. That is trusting in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. There is salvation in no one else. But they also tell us this. These verses tell us that the work of Jesus does not force the Father's love. The work of Jesus flows from the Father's love. Massive difference. All those who have faith in Jesus and are united to Him, God the Father loves. See, God the Father has loved His Son with perfect passionate intensity for all of eternity. And by faith, Christian brother and sister, you are wrapped up in an insoluble union with Christ so that the Father really does delight in you as He delights in His Son. Some still grumble. But It takes Jesus to make me truly lovable. And I'd say there's truth in that. But I'd say this. Complaining that it takes union with Christ to make you lovable is like a bride on her wedding day. She's dressed in her gorgeous dress, has had her makeup done and hair fixed and Everybody tells her how lovely she looks, and she responds, what was wrong with me before? That's not what brides do. Brides rejoice in the union. So it is with us. We are united to Christ. He is our heavenly husband. And so, the same words that God the Father spoke to Jesus at his baptism, he speaks to all those who have been baptized by the Spirit into Christ. That is, you have faith in him. He loves you as his own son, his own daughter. He takes great delight in you. You are pleasing to him. And so, brothers and sisters, dwell upon that. If you want book recommendations, i got about 15. Enjoy it. Celebrate it. But also remember, we're a family. 
We need to remind each other of these things. And so as we disciple one another in our community groups together, remind each other of the Father's love to your brothers and sisters in Christ. For my friends, not trusting in Jesus, Jesus alone to have a relationship with God, know that you cannot be good enough or obey enough rules to become part of God's family. It can't, that's not how sonship happens. That's not how you become a son or a daughter. Just like I cannot obey enough laws or pay enough taxes to become the child of some king or some president. That's not going to happen. And so it is with God. The only way to have a relationship with the Father is through the Son. Jesus himself says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Nathan taught on John 1.12 last week. We receive the right to become children of God. Our identity is not earned and created. It is declared and received. you come to Christ this morning so you can look not to God as a judge who will condemn you at the end of history, but as a father who will love you for all of eternity. Will you believe in Christ and come to him? And when you do that, when we're convinced of God's love for us, when we understand who we are, children of a good and gracious father, we will do what God calls us to do. So second, when we know who we are, we will joyfully do what God calls us to do. Hear God's word, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So the first event after Jesus' baptism, which proclaims that he's the Son of God, is this time of testing to prove, in fact, that he is the Son of God. And it was the Spirit who led him to be tempted by the devil. Notice a couple things. One, notice the spiritual realm is real. Satan and his demons are real. And they really do tempt us. And notice that it's not God tempting, it's Satan. It's the devil, the one doing the tempting. God is sovereign over all things, but he does not tempt anyone. Satan's motivation here is to break the faith of Jesus. The Father's motivation is to prove it. So in this passage, Jesus proves that in fact he is the greater Adam, the true Israel, the promised Savior. So Adam and Eve 
faced one temptation in paradise and failed. Jesus faces numerous temptations in the wilderness and prevails. Israel went through the baptismal waters of the Red Sea, then wandered in the desert for 40 years, failing to trust God. Jesus comes out of the baptismal waters and walks around in the wilderness for 40 days, completely trusting his Father. That's Matthew's main point. And notice where the devil aims his attack. Did you see it? Verse 3. The tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God. Verse 5 and 6. The devil took him and said to him, If you are the Son of God. Any coincidence this happens right after God says, This is my beloved Son? I don't think so. So Satan takes him, aims his shot squarely at the son's relationship with the father. And I don't, I don't think that Satan is trying to get Jesus to believe that he's not the son of God. But I think he's trying to get him to distrust his father, which is just as important and just as damaging. So he's not questioning if he's a son, but what does it mean to be a son? He tempts Jesus to distrust the Father's provision, distort the Father's promises, and deny the Father's plans. That's what's happening. And why was Jesus able to face these temptations and not give in? Here's why. He knows who he is. He knows that he has a good and a gracious Father. So Jesus knew who he was, so he joyfully did all that honored his dad. His who-ness determined his wetness. His status gave shape to his behavior. His identity determined his practice. So at the heart of every temptation is an assault on our status as sons and daughters of a good and gracious Heavenly Father. That's what's at stake. So every temptation you face is really a temptation to doubt what it means to be a child of God and to question God's goodness. Every temptation, that's what it means. What does it mean to be a child? And is your father really good and gracious? Every single one. Because here's, here's what happens. When you don't know who you are, more important, you don't know whose you are, you don't know which temptations are worth resisting and which sacrifices are worth making. But Jesus knows. And Jesus prevails. The first temptation. Distrust your father's provision, Jesus. So Satan is saying to Jesus, Jesus, if you are the Son of God, and your Father's so good, why are you hungry? I mean, go ahead, just take these stones, turn them into bread, and eat. Again, this should be familiar to us, shouldn't it? Satan's doing the same thing he did to Adam and Eve. Your Father's not very good. You should eat apart from his will. On the surface, not that big of a deal, right? Jesus could and would do miracles. It'd be easy for him to take some stones and turn it into bread. Very easy. And let's, let's be clear, like now would be the reasonable time to do that. 40 days. He's hungry. He's hungry. Satan's going right at a weakness. Like, you are hungry. It'd be reasonable to use his power just a, just a little bread. So what's going on? 
Well, Satan is trying to introduce an element of selfish disobedience into his Christ relationship with his father. Here's the question. Will Jesus trust the goodness of the father or seek provision elsewhere? That's the question. And how does Jesus respond? It is written. With each temptation, Jesus says, it is written. And all three quotations come from Deuteronomy chapter 6 through 8. And each passage, you'll notice, look at each passage, who is central? God is central to each one of those passages. The controlling passion in Jesus' life is his relationship with the Father. So when tempted to eat, he responds, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so this statement is not something Jesus is like trying to enforce on Satan. That's not what he's trying to do. Rather, it's saying, this is what's going to govern my own life. He's saying, I will abide in the word of God. Every single word of it. By the way, side note, notice again, Jesus confirms the Bible is the very word of God. So Jesus says, I'm going to trust the Father. He's a good Father. He will provide for me. When Jesus was hungry, he, he trusted, he looked to his all-satisfying, all-sufficient word and goodness and grace of his Father. Jesus knows who he is. His identity is secure. And because his identity is secure, he rejects the temptation of the devil to satisfy an immediate desire. And you too will be tempted. You will be tempted to take legitimate desires and use them for self-gratification. And in doing so, you'll be tempted to, to doubt what it means to be a child, to doubt the Father's goodness. And so your, your desire for food, you'll be tempted to overeat. Your desire for approval, you'll be tempted to humble brag on social media. You desire sleep and you'll be tempted toward laziness. You desire intimacy and you'll be tempted toward lust and sexual immorality. You desire friendship and you'll be tempted to lie, to impress others, to get them to like you. You desire companionship and so you'll be tempted to date a non-Christian. Whatever it is, Satan is whispering in your ear, God is not providing for you. He is holding out on you. He is not a good father. Did he really say? Take, eat. Here's what Satan knows. When you don't understand what it means to be a child and God's goodness becomes questionable, seeking other things will become inevitable. When God's goodness becomes questionable, seeking other things will become inevitable. So in those moments, what will your controlling passion be? Will you remember who you are united to Christ and trust in the Father's goodness? Or will you believe the lie he's holding out on you? When you're tempted to doubt what it means to be a child and believe the Father is harsh and demanding, what will you do? I have a suggestion. It is written. Remember who God is. Remember what God has done. Remember what God will do. And when you cannot say these things to yourself, invite someone to say, it is written. Invite brothers and sisters proactively to remind you of your identity. It is written in the presence of God, there's the fullness of joy. It is written that he sent his son to die for my sins. It is written that heaven is just ahead. What more do I lack? 
Beloved, remember who you are and whose you are so that in the face of temptation, your identity, your status will give shape to your behavior. Jesus was tempted to distrust the Father's provision. He's also tempted to distort God's promises. So the devil attacks Jesus where he's weak. That didn't work. So now he's going to attack him where he's strong. Jesus, you got scripture? I got scripture. Hear this scripture, Jesus. Trust in this scripture. And then he quotes some verses from Psalm 91. So he takes him to high atop a temple in Jerusalem. And Satan challenges him to throw himself down to prove his sonship by way of an angelic rescue. He's like, Psalm 91 promises God will protect those that are his own. Again, the devil is attacking the relationship between the father and the son. Would Jesus trust his identity as a son in God's promised care? Or would he needlessly prove it at Satan's request? Jesus responds, it is written. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, this quote comes from Deuteronomy when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness and they begin to question God's promise to deliver them. And so they start demanding things like food. And they're testing God. Jesus doesn't do that. Because Jesus knows anytime we demand something from God, we cease trusting the goodness of God. Jesus knows what Psalm 91 says. He doesn't even try to recorrect. You're out of context, Satan. That's not good hermeneutics. That's not even, that's, he doesn't even do that. No, he just says, listen. I know what Psalm 91 says, and I know it says God graciously promises to protect his own. And I take God at his word. Jesus is saying it's, it's one thing. It's a disobedient thing to distort God's promises and require reproof from God. It's another thing, a joyfully obedient thing, to take God's promises and expect, te- expect protection from him. I don't have to prove God. So as one commentator said, the real question here is, do we follow God or must he follow us? See, when we forget God's goodness and doubt his graciousness, we'll start to distort his promises, demanding he meet our wants and wishes. All the while, we forget that he's already giving us everything he can in Christ. He's given us himself for eternity. And he's like, what more do you want? You want proof? Look at a cross. You want proof? Look at the tomb. You want proof? Look at the promises of my word. He's never failed to keep his word. Beloved, remember who you are and whose you are. You are a child of a good and gracious father who is always faithful to his word. Only then, when your identity is that, will it shape your practice. Well, Satan's not done yet. He's tried and failed twice. He's got one last ditch effort. Deny the Father's plan. Third temptation, Satan offers something to Jesus that is rightfully his. All the glory and kingdoms of the world. And Jesus will get this. So he's offering something that's rightfully his that he will get. 
So the, the devil is saying, like, listen, if you're a God's son, why should you have to be a servant? If you're going to be a king, why should you have to be crucified? Shouldn't everybody know how glorious you are now? Think about it. Jesus faces the same temptation on the cross. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So do you see what Satan's doing? It's interesting to note, throughout the book of Matthew so far, the Holy Spirit has led Jesus down. Down in the incarnation, down into the baptism waters, down into the wilderness. The reverse is now happening. Satan has been leading him up. Satan is trying to get Jesus to wear the crown apart from walking to the cross. He's trying to give Jesus, get Jesus to take the crown apart from the cross. Jesus will get his glory and his power. But with Satan's offer, he doesn't have to do two things we all loathe. Wait and suffer. You deserve it now, Jesus. And Satan points to the things of the world, success, power, prestige, and says, get them now, Jesus. Get him now. He's tempting Jesus to define himself by the world standards, not by his status before the Father. Sound familiar? And Jesus responds, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. See, Jesus is ruled by a greater love and a higher status than this world can give. He's ruled by his sonship and God's love for him and his love for God. This love fuels him so much that he'll delay wearing the crown and he'll give up his life on a cross. Why? So that he can share that status with all who come to him that we too might enjoy being sons and daughters of a good, good father. You will face these temptations. You will face temptations. You will face temptations to seek status and identity from worldly things. If there's one thing, I love this city. It's awesome. I hope to live the rest of my life here. But if there's one thing this city is going to tempt you to, it's going to tempt you to define yourself by your position and your power and your title and your prestige as if the whole world cares what you do every day. That's how important you are. Now, your work is important but it's not that important. The most important thing about you is your status before a father in heaven. My son, my daughter, I love you. I am well pleased in you because of who you are. Don't buy the lie of Satan that success comes from this world. It's a lie from the devil. It is satanic. Rest in your identity as a cherished child. Enjoy it. Ironically, that will make you work harder and better in some ways. So if you have a good, good father in heaven who's given his son for you and has promised you everything for eternity, forever 
and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. What do you lack? If you're truly united to Christ, by the Spirit, and the Spirit has brought you into God's family, not as a servant, but as a son, as a daughter, with full access to a Heavenly Father, with an inheritance beyond comprehension, what do you lack? So what does God think about when He thinks about you? If that all hangs on union with Christ. If you're trusting in Christ, the Father says the same thing to you He says to Jesus. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. In him, in her, I am well pleased. Let that fuel what you do in the face of temptation. You can trust a good father's provision. You can trust his promises. And you can trust his plans. If you're not united to Christ, if you're not trusting in Jesus this morning, I hope you see the beautiful offer of what's there when you trust in Christ. And I hope you see the reality the grim, eternal reality of all that's missing when you don't trust in Christ. Will you come to Him? These are weighty and wonderful things. May the Spirit apply them to our life. Let's pray. Father, we do come to You and we marvel at Your Word and at Your goodness. Oh, how awesome and amazing Your Word is. Give us the grace to believe who we are in Christ. Give us the grace to enjoy it, to embrace it, to understand it and live in light of it. Holy Spirit, do this that we might enjoy our status before our Father in heaven. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.